Welcome to another episode of The Shredder Show. So uh, absolute pleasure to have uh, Mr. Dan Lawrence on the podcast. So Dan um, specializes in training high-performance athletes, works with a lot of professional boxers, professional fighters, and also professional footballers, having just returned from a very glamorous trip in Portugal. So uh, thank you very much for your time, Dan. Really, really appreciate it. And I'm also going to, at the end of this episode, going to ask Dan a load of questions in regards to some stuff I want to learn in regards to improving my uh, physical ability and output in terms of boxing. So we'll go into that and side note where I can steal information from Dan, but thank you very much for your time. Firstly, no, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's, uh, it's awesome to catch up and uh, hopefully there's some value in this for your listeners. 100%. Now, um, obviously, we were just discussing before again that you've just returned from Portugal. Like, what, what is it you look at when you're training like pro athletes? Like, What's the first thing you address with people generally? Yeah, when we dive in with the pro athletes, it's very outcome-led. So we have a specific outcome. That might be a set date if it's one on the boxers or, you know, a footballer who's just returned to pre-season with Tottenham. It's, it's very specific outcome led. And prior to starting any journey with any elite level athlete or any client in general, we go through an in-depth needs analysis. We identify, you know, what are the demands of the sport from a physiological point of view? Um, you know, what do they require in the weight room to drive performance forwards? And basically see their existing schedule. Because to be honest, Charlie, I can't go in like a bull in a china shop, give them 20 things to do if I have no understanding of what they currently do. So um, it might almost be a reductionist approach of going in and saying, maybe we can pull back a little bit on a couple of things that might not be driving the adaptation we're looking to drive from a from a you know, um, improvement point of view. And then it might be, you know, layering it and, and then tweaking it accordingly. So yeah, just seeing where they're at and where their feet stand initially. And then we go through like an assessment, performance testing, et cetera. We use that data to then drive our decisions further. 100%. Now, um, I think you said it's okay to talk about, you just returned from being in Portugal with professional footballer from Tottenham? Yeah, happy to talk about it. Yeah, to, to a degree. So yeah, Ryan Sessignon, a lovely young chap, 22 years old, plays for Tottenham. And um, we were out at the campus in Quanta de Lavo and honestly, Charlie, insane facilities. I was like a kid at Christmas on the first day coming out, just like, wow, this is this is epic. And uh, we were there for a week. I then we both flew back to the UK uh, for five days and then we got back out there for another seven days. So, yeah, it was, it was a very immersive training block, double sessions. And uh, we've just done the handover to Tottenham now and feel like he's in a, a much better position, you know. Really strange question. People probably listen to this who are fitness nerds as well. Can the average Joe book in and go to these places if they have enough money? It's a great question because it's actually something that I thought about when I was over there. And I'm looking at potentially, you know, running some kind of high performance retreats over there for like business leaders and, and other people who are part of our ecosystem. And the answer is yes. I um, I was blown away by the Irish contingent over there. So I, I actually fly to Dublin on Monday, Charlie. My, my father was from Dublin or from Ireland, I should say. And um and yeah, everyone was Irish. It's owned by a guy, I think, Aidan O'Brien, some, some billionaire in Ireland. And I don't think he does it really to make huge amounts of money. It's just a hub of, you know, it's a high performance hub. It's insane. You've got a lovely restaurant there called Dano's. You've got the campus itself, which has huge football pitches, like three, 4G pitches, but yeah, really good turf. It's in a beautiful surrounding. It's, yeah, the houses around there are, are fabulous. It's in a great area. The pro players like it because... They don't get disturbed, you know, other than a few kids asking for some pictures outside of the grounds, which is absolutely fine. There's zero paparazzi. No one really cares. They just get on with their work. And there's a really good uh, two-floor gym there as well as uh, hot and cold immersion, saunas, uh, steam rooms, outdoor pool. Oh, I want to go back. Yeah, I might have to book a trip to Portugal. Sounds yeah, like let's get out there. <laughs> I'm actually surprised, to be fair, that they haven't built something like that in Dubai yet. Obviously, you have to build it indoors because it's so like, fucking hot. But 
it seems like it's a place probably crying out for something like that, to be fair. Agreed, especially with the indoor side of things. I was actually out in Dubai, I think 2017 with a footballer and honestly, Charlie, it was ridiculous. We did a, a trap session. It was originally scheduled at 7.30 because I was obviously aware of how hot it gets. This was in May, but bearing in mind, ahead of the pre, uh, pre-season at Chelsea, he was out at the time. And... Um, Anyway, he pushed it back. I think he had an evening with his with his girlfriend. He went for dinner. It got a little bit late. So he pushed back to like 9.30. Oh, my goodness. It was just a sun trap on there. It was ludicrous. So no, it would have to be inside. And I'm sure that if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Dubai, isn't it? 100%. Now, when we're talking about obviously like pro athletes and the things you address with them, where do you have like a sequence of things you look at? Do you look at like more than like you obviously mentioned like a needs analysis in terms of what they need? Do you then break that back then into like the mechanics in terms of how they move and maybe where they've got a lack of strength in maybe certain planes of movement or certain motions perhaps? Yeah, exactly. Great question. So look, needs analysis of the sport fundamentally. Okay, what are the physiological demands of the sport? Is it a 12-round fight, 36 minutes, 48 minutes of total kind of time with the minutes in between? Um, We've got to look at what drives that and then feeds that into our you know our training strategy so needs analysis of the sport first and foremost we then go through a full screening and assessment something i say is even though these are elite level athletes they're not elite level runners they don't move in, in elite ways in uh, you know they're quite restrictive in certain areas let's keep it on the trend of boxing you know everything's in front of them we're living in a world where all of us now, as we as we record this Zoom, you know, we're, we're this is where we set up straight. We um, we're in this forward head rounded position of you know a kyphotic posture in this exaggerated curvature reflection. Um, that you know we're, we're always on our phones, we're always driving, we're always on our laptops, and then these guys are you know boxing for I don't know four or five hours a day and have been doing so since they're eight years old. So there's obvious constraints around shoulder mobility, a lack of range in the thoracic spine. That we have to look, they're never going to be moving freely overhead in shoulder flexion. But then again, the question would maybe do they need to access that range of motion? Probably not. If they have major asymmetries, i.e., left to right, there's this huge imbalances that could potentially be problematic over time. So it's just a matter of identifying what the red flags are, making sure they stay within certain zones and that they haven't got huge, uh, huge issues there that, that may be restrictive, that may then lead to a performance decrement. Um, so, yeah, we go through a full movement assessment screening, overhead squat. We look at ankle range of motion. We look at shoulder flexion. Uh, we do basic kind of, yeah, like knee to wall tests and things. Um, we then go through performance testing. And that's where we look at more objectivity. You've probably seen like we used to use a push band, which is an accelerometer. We now use uh, use these guys output over in uh, over in Dublin. There's the plug guys. And um, they're, they're really good because the, what it does, it gives objectivity to our work. So let's just give your listeners some context. Let's say they're doing a trap bar deadlift. And we want to drive strength-based adaptations. So the goal is to raise up a limit of force production. We know force times velocity equals power. So if we work that one component of the overall equation, then, you know, they're, they're hopefully we can then transfer that into a more powerful athlete. So we want to, based on Brian Mann's data of velocity-based training, move it at minimum velocity threshold of 0.28 and then all the way up to 0.5. So it stays within those markers. And we also know, and the reason I mentioned this, Charlie, there's fluctuations on a day-to-day basis. So if your percentage of 1RM is is X on Monday and you've literally rested up on Sunday, you're fully fueled, you've had your eight hours, you've um, you've had your ergogenic A before your workout, you're ready to attack the new week. Well, let's say you did the same thing on Wednesday, but you've had a row with the girlfriend, whatever, you've had four hours sleep, you've got loads of work stresses on. Those days are not created equal. 
So we, you know, we auto-regulate on that, that specific day based on how fatigued and stressed they are. But going back to VBT, it gives us a more focused approach of objectivity based on how the athlete presents himself on that given day. And what I'd also say with boxers, especially in any combat sports athlete, we're constantly managing stress and recovery. They're, they're flirting with the lines of being chronically fatigued, you know. So, um, so we have to look at that data to inform our decisions, yeah. Do you find that, like, in a lot of respects, is trying to quantify the unquantifiable? Because obviously trying to measure that is a difficult thing. Do you have anything you use, like measuring HRV and things like that to try and check if people are getting massively chronically fatigued? Blood pressure, yeah, perhaps? Yeah, so I'm wearing an aura ring there. Um, so I, I look at that myself. I, I've got a lot of my footballers involved with that. Um, I do have two of my boxers using a whoop as well, which we look at the data. It's interesting. I featured on a podcast yesterday with one of my former athletes, George Groves, former uh, super middleweight world champion. We spoke about that, of like merging the old school methods and then the new school research. And uh, I think sometimes we can go down too far down the rabbit hole of objectivity as much as I'm big on it because it gives me more. It gives me not just you're getting better because I said you're getting better. I've got the data to prove it. Um, but there's certain outliers and athletes like a Connor Ben that I work with, for example, who he would not want to know. And I don't want him to know that he's had, you know, he might wake up thinking he's had great sleep and actually he's only had six hours and he's had 40 minutes of, you know, deep sleep. So I think sometimes it can be disregarded and it's got to be an athlete centered model in a way of identify what, what that athlete is like as a human and then see whether that data is either going to be a positive or a negative. So, um, yeah, we, we do look at that and then that feeds into our decisions. Yeah. I think that's a smart way. So I always like, I don't look at my aura ring, like in terms of HRV and body temperature, unless like I wake up and feel like dog shit. I'm like, Hmm, I might have a look at this. Yeah. And then if my HRV is through the floor and I've got a temperature, I'm like, I pro there's probably something up. I maybe shouldn't train today. Do you know what I mean? Smart. And, and that's it. I think that's the best way to do it, Charlie, is disregard it if you, if you, you know, you don't want to see it that day. If you're going to crush a heavy leg session, you wake up feeling all right, just go and attack that session. If you do feel exactly that, you're, like, you're coming down with something a bit under the weather, your body temperature's up, then maybe check it. Because what we also used it with a couple of the Premier League players I work with in the whole lockdown period, it was a predictor of COVID. We actually that's found out... Mindful. Yeah, we found out 24 hours ahead of them actually going into the club and getting the test that um, that they had, you know, they had COVID. All the signs were there that they had COVID. You know, HRV was um, was all over the place. Body temperature was through the roof. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, it's funny. That's what clocked it when I I had COVID when I was in Mexico, and again, like woke up, felt a bit shit, and I was like, fuck, I'm just gonna go train anyway. When it like trained legs, felt like I was about to die after about like four sets. And I looked at my aura ring and my temperature was up like three degrees Fahrenheit and uh, my resting heart rate was through the roof and my HRV was through the floor. And I was like, you've definitely got COVID. <laughs> I remember because you were going to come to Miami, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. That's, I was so sick. That's, that's why I ended up going back to Dubai because I, I ended up losing. I actually then got a stomach parasite as well. So I lost like six kilos in like two weeks or something. Oh, yeah. Wow. Um, but again, that, that shows why these things are, d are useful though because also I think there's and as you would know with coaching people is, is managing different people's psychology and the fact that some people just train even when they feel like shit and they make themselves worse with something like that can objectively be like no like you're not right you need to rest otherwise you're just digging such a big hole for recovery you'll never get out of it exactly perfectly articulated i think you've just got to take it sometimes with a pinch of salt and just do the work but in the in the other 
way you're saying there is actually if you're not feeling great, check that data and then use it. Otherwise, why are you tracking if you're not going to use that data? So there's two sides of the coin. Don't just because you've had seven hours, 59 hours sleep um, or seven hours, 59 minutes sleep as opposed to eight hours, then think, oh, I'm now not going to do my workout. You know, take it with a pinch of salt in that regard. But um, but yeah, look, data is good. Data is there for a reason. And yeah, we should use it for sure. Yeah, it's how you interpret it and use it. Um, exactly. the, the next question I have in regards to actually one thing you mentioned before we go to the next one is uh, ankle mobility. So I'm going to talk about some things I personally struggle with. I'm super flat-footed. What do you do with people you work with in terms of when they have limited ankle mobility, maybe it's structurally? Is there anything you look at first to improve that range of motion or like minimize the, the downsides and those sort of things? Yeah, definitely. I think if they're lacking in range of motion through the ankle joint and kind of all through the subtalar joint is – okay, what exercises are we then going to say? Probably that's not going to be the smartest thing for us to do. So if we're trying to drive a specific adaptation, you know, maybe I don't want to, I don't know, let's say put a bar on someone's back and go super heavy with some squats um, unless we're elevating those heels. Yes, that's a, a full sense of range. We understand that. But if you do elevate those heels that, you know, you're going to access more dorsiflexion. So you're going to get a better tracking and biomechanical position for your squat. So that would be like, if you've got a hole in the boat, put a plaster over it type thing. It, it, you know, it's, it's not the greatest intervention, but it could get by. Then we actually say, how do we address the root cause of this problem? And understandably, some people might have six centimeters ankle range of motion. Some might have 17 centimeters ankle range of motion. We are very different in how, how we're made up. What we can say, though, is if you, want, if you can access a couple of centimeters extra, how will that impact us? And you could do your basic knee to wall, closed chain ankle dorsiflexion. So for the listeners, that's driving the knee forwards over the toe. Um, you could posteriorly band that. So you're gliding and creating some traction and range of motion through, you know, the ankle complex, through the subtalar joint, um, just to enhance range. And that could just be a prep exercise before you squat. So like, you know, a lot of people struggle obviously with the ankles and then also like thoracic spine. If you put a heavy bar on one's back, sorry to go off piece, I'll bring it back around. If you put a heavy bar on one's back and they're lacking in range in terms of shoulder external rotation, they're lacking in range in terms of thoracic extension. Well, how do they access that range? They have to go through lumbar extension. So uh, best way for me to describe this is um, all the ladies on Instagram sticking their bums out for, uh, for the likes. That's kind of lumbar extension. You're sticking your booty out, basically. Uh, but what will that mean if we've got 100, 150, 200 kilos on your back? It will mean your abs are deactivated. So your anterior core and trunk is not engaged. It means your rib cage dissociates from the pelvis and separates. And it also means you're then compressing and shear loading, you know, the vertebrae. And we know the lumbar spine is susceptible to injury. So... I think there's, there's certain things you can do that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and flipping it back around to the ankles. Something we've been playing around with as well, Charlie, is even in the warm-ups now, doing like a, a front foot elevated split squat, but allowing the knee to drive over, to, over the toe. So you're increasing range of motion through loading positions. And then you almost go through like a yielding isometric where you hold that position. You could even oscillate in end range just to promote a little bit more range. Um, so that's something we do as well, loading through specific ranges. And don't be scared when you do your split squats or lunge of that need tracking over the toe. I think that's uh, that's something we'd, we'd like to debunk as well. If you've got no knee problems and issues, you can actually try and get that knee over the toe as well, you know, and that will enhance range through the ankle. I think that's one of the common misconceptions people have, though, is almost like people are almost afraid of knee flexion. I think in any exercise, like whether it's like, I don't know, like a hack squat or a pendulum squat, people seem paranoid that like, if you go to the bottom, your knee's going to explode. It's like your knee's going to explode if you go to the bottom with too much weight and you have zero control. Like, yeah, it's, that's the exactly. key. 
And have you accessed that range of motion before? It's like exactly that. If you haven't accessed that range of motion and you get increased degrees of knee flexion and then you decide to do that under huge amounts of load, likely you won't like it. It has to be, again, for your listeners, probably like a mountain analogy works pretty well here. You don't reach the summit of the mountain, the top of the mountain without earning the right to, you know, you've got to climb the mountain first and foremost. So as ever with everything, progressive overload, adding more load, incremental gains over time. Yeah, don't dive, dive in at the deep end, so to speak, and gradually build yourself up. But uh, yeah, focus on kind of what you need to focus on and don't go too hard too early. Well, that's the, that's the biggest thing I see with people looking at working to get in shape is they want to throw the kitchen sink at everything. And after three days, they can't handle it anymore and they give up. And it's like, the reality is it's like minimal effective dose is the answer in terms of actually getting results. You want to do the least amount of work and be as efficient as possible and then get out essentially spot on and it goes back to the big c word consistency doesn't it mm. you know it's uh, it's the tortoise hair analogy it's like you've got to just gradually layer it gradually stack those wins each day and a win might be as simple as an incremental gain of two and a half kilos on a bench press it, you know that might be or it might even be okay you've managed to get an, an extra couple of repetitions out if you're using like a reps in reserve protocol so um it doesn't have to be this huge like you say expose yourself to too much of a stimulus too much of a stressor you then can't train for three days because you just you know, we've all been there, but you're in complete bits. It's just give yourself a dose, recover, adapt, go again, keep stacking, keep stacking, and then you'll get where you need to go. Yeah, I think something for people to understand is that consistency compounds over time. So all those small wins just stack on top of each other, stack on top of each other, and that's how you make big leaps forwards in six to 12 months rather than people get too worried about like, I haven't improved in two weeks. Whereas like if you extend your time horizon, same from a business perspective, People look too much at like the micro in terms of how much money they've made in the last week or month versus how much money have you made this month versus last month last year and look at the bigger long trends. And that's really the key that people need to look at. Spot on. And exactly what I say is, you know, be a macro, not a micro level thinker. Don't think about that one awesome workout. Think about stacking those wins over time, being consistent. Like you say, say same thing with business. Don't think about that here and now. Think about the longer term of how far you've come over the 12, 18 month period. 100%. Um, next question I have to you is in regards to uh, like conventional weight training, like maybe like people maybe gone from more of a bodybuilding background. Do you see issues with how that converts to maybe conventional sports, or maybe what some people do in their training and they think that's best to aid them with like an athletic performance? Do you see that hindering people's training, and what would that be that they're doing, and what specifically is it holding them back from doing? If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Quite quite a lot in there. I think context like contextually. Like, it's depends. it depends if I'm honest yeah you know the usual answer but context is king um, but I will still try and give something from that is utilizing the said principle specific adaptation for imposed demands okay identify what the goal is and then put the strategy in place to reach that goal so let's just say for example going back to I suppose the two ends of the spectrum let's say bodybuilding and optimal performance for an athlete I think there's an element of bodybuilding that can go into that I think um, for my fighters, generally speaking, we don't go through like a hypertrophy-focused block because of the the weight constraints that they have. They have to make weight to fight, so we don't always get that luxury. I've actually had a couple, and I've got one now that you know he potentially is uh, stepping up in weight. So that gives us like a four to six week block where we can focus on hypertrophy to improve muscle cross-sectional area that when we then go into like a strength and power phase, we then got kind of more to pull from, so to speak. Um, so. I think that, again, it really depends on the goal. And, and you look at the mechanisms of hypertrophy, mechanical tension, muscle damage, and metabolic stress. Do we utilize those in our athletic-centered plan? Yeah, we do. You know, we, we do look at mechanical tension, absolutely, because that's a, 
know, will drive strength-based adaptations. So I think there's elements we can take from bodybuilding. I was having a really good chat with, with our friend Mark Coles about this in Miami, actually, is that, you know, if, for example, like if we're looking at, let's say, a boxer, they transfer energy from foot through to fist through the kinetic chain. There's a lot going on through that. We've got to look at, you know, the ankle complex, ground contact times. We've got to look at muscular tendon unit stiffness, how springy and reactive they are on the floor so they can evade shots and get their own shots off. We can look at the anterior hip complex because if they're sitting down all day and they're very tight and immobile through the anterior hips, that's not only going to impact pelvic positioning, but it's also going to mean agonist-antagonist relationship is the glutes just aren't going to be able to use uh, their full recruitment because they're not going to be, you're not going to be able to extend that hip as you throw your backhand, which is pretty important from a power output point of view. You then got to look at the trunk. If all you ever do is ab crunches all day, that may not be the best strategy. Maybe looking at some more exercises that buffer forces on the spine, like, you know, dead bugs, paloff presses, and then looking at more kind of re reactive work of the trunk is, is a little bit more specific and transferable. We then look up the chain, and this is kind of my reason for this, this visual representation. What goes on at the uh, the tricep when someone throws a shot? Well, you're extending. The tricep extends the elbow. So actually doing some focused isolation work of the tricep, when you know your why and you understand your rationale, I'm all right with that at the end of a session because then we can link it into actually a fighter's going to need that and also to build some robustness around the elbows, which tend to become very beaten up in boxing and also the shoulder complex. So I think it goes back to just knowing your why. Context is king. Um, normal answer in strength conditioning, as we said, is it depends. But um, I think there can be a merging of the two. You just got to know your why, you know? Yeah. So I think ultimately the, the long and short answer needs to be sport specific to what you're doing, which I think you, um, you explained really, really well. One thing I always find fascinating, what do you think is the... The, the big mindset difference you see with the athletes you work with, maybe the ones that are the most successful and the ones that aren't. Like I know you referred earlier to um, the chat from Tottenham who you're like super impressed with. And like, you, you, like I know it, like, you know, when you meet people sometimes, they just have a fucking winning mindset and they have a beautiful energy that almost like inspires you and drives you to work harder. Like you must see a, a big difference, I imagine, from some people who have that mindset, maybe who aren't maybe the most gifted. And there may be some people who maybe are, super gifted and it's almost too easy but maybe they lack a bit of application sometimes definitely it's the single-minded focus they have to be selfish you know they are especially the fighters they haven't got 10 other teammates um you know on the pitch if they have a bad day at the office they're literally on their ass and their career is you know in jeopardy so to because the stakes are so high you have to be single-minded you have to be selfish and I love the, uh, the um, analogy from Jimmy Iovine, the Defiant Ones on Netflix. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but he says, be like a racehorse. Forget what's going on left to right and just focus on the end outcome. And that's exactly what my fighters do. They have to be selfish. They have to be single-minded. And everything else just becomes noise. So I'm blessed, Charlie, to be brutally honest, because, yes, I've done the whole lose weight, tone up. I've worked with general population clients in the, in the past where you know they have to be guided. You have to push on pain points more. You have to have clarity with their goals to keep them going. If they hit a hump in the road, you have to keep them, keep them moving forwards. And there, there's an art in that for sure. But with the elite athletes, sometimes it's the other side. It's like, actually, we need to pull back a little bit. Actually, you're probably doing a little bit too much. These are very intense individuals, you know, people who have their foot on the gas all the time. And we look at the three-pronged approach of stressor, recovery, and adaptation. And if they're not getting that middle piece in terms of recovery, they're simply not going to adapt. So, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, a, you know, it, it's great to see. It really is great to see because I've got such 
a great bunch of athletes who are fully immersed, fully bought in. And look, it comes from the top with the fighters. You know, you've got Tony Sims there, who's the head boxing coach at Matchroom, who sets very high standards. I've come in and, you know, my standards are equally as high as Tony's. And we've basically got a, excuse the language, like a no dickhead rule, you know. You've just got to be be a good person first, be coachable, be teachable. And even the likes of Conor Ben, who's now, you know, he's, he's this big global star. He's got a huge following on social media. He's on the cusp of potential huge, huge fights. But he's a lovely guy. And the ego, though may, many may see it via his social media, that's only a snippet. He's a lovely, lovely person. Who's the most intense person you've worked with, if you're allowed to say? Conor Ben, without a shadow of a doubt. Without a shadow of a doubt, I've literally just had him on here. We're trying to sort out a Dexter scan on Harley Street. And, um, oh, God, he's just, yeah, he's, he's a lot. He's a lot, but I love it because I, I'm a lot, if I'm honest. I'm intense, you know, and he 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 certainly matches my intensity and some. And, um, you know, I'm talking Charlie calls at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, I did, like, sending me pictures of his food, identifying, you know, every aspect that he will not leave anything on the table. But surely that's what I want from an athlete. And it absolutely is. So, um, yeah, he's fully immersed, fully bought in. And uh, we have a running joke about his intensity. And uh, I called him intense very early on in the journey. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it's been a bit of a running joke of ours. It's good because that's, that's the number one thing that sets people apart. It's like your work ethic and what you can do. So I think that's the big thing you see with like, anyone who's successful in anything. You have to be like borderline insane. So whether it's like... Like I've got a screw loose. I'm just weird. Like I like working more than I should like. I've got a, like a unquenchable thirst to be successful. And I know you're the same and a lot of other people do. And it gets to the point where like, I don't really need to work as much, but I still want to do it more and more and more. And someone asked me earlier, like, what are you, what's your addiction? What's your advice? And I was like, progress. I'm addicted at being better at things. So like one of these we'll talk about later on is like, I started doing some boxing a couple of weeks ago and I got fucking obsessed with that because I just start something new and I get addicted to stuff because I just want to get better and better and better. And when you start something new, it's pretty easy to obviously improve pretty quick. But I think that's um, a positive mindset. And when you find you have a mindset like that, it almost becomes like a superpower, but you just need to learn how to harness it effectively, I guess. Agreed. There's research 30 years ago, Carol Dweck of Growth versus Fixed Mindset, which I'm sure you're, you're very aware of. And I echo those words. We certainly, the two of us, have a growth mindset. And every day is a school day. We're constantly trying to get better and learn in some capacity. And I've now got a mentorship group where I mentor coaches and we've got a group and uh, it's created a real elite environment, pun intended. It's actually the name elite. But um, we put podcasts in there, audio books, et cetera. And they're just blown away by how I'm, getting them to raise their level and even you know what have I got 16 and a half years skin in the game I've trained over 30 champions and uh, I'm still feel like I have an imposter syndrome every single day I'm constantly trying to learn and I, I don't think that's a bad thing you know I do 20 minutes audible before bed I'll do two podcasts a day as a bare minimum um, and you know even jumping on podcasts like this this challenges me you know it gets my brain working it's great to have these engaging conversations so I think uh, yeah just just every day is a school day irrespective of where you are on your journey I think that's what and one of my favorite sayings is like when you think you know everything you know nothing because people who yeah, are in that exactly. oppression, they don't, they know everything. It's like you don't, because no one knows everything. You can't be the master of everything. It just doesn't work. Spot on. It's the Dunning Kruger effect. I don't know if you've seen mm. that one, but uh, for the listeners, punch that into Google Dunning Kruger. And it's like early on in the journey, you become qualified. You might work with a couple of people and you think you literally know everything. And actually, you don't know anything. And then it kind of goes up and it comes all the way back down. It eventually comes up the other side of actually, you really are an expert in your area. 
and you've got the years of experience and you're starting to believe that yeah, maybe you know one or two things, but uh, there's still so much to learn. What's the, been the biggest achievement of your career so far? That's an interesting question. It's not on the list of questions I'd ask you, but it just came to my head. No, it's good. Um, hard one to answer. I, my achievements are through other people. So it's, it's not like I get in the ring. It's not like I get on the football pitch, but you know, that's what coaching is for me. I, I'm blessed to work with the best is what I say. And, Look, isn't it? You know, obviously, a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice, as as you well know, and as as I know you have as well, Charlie. Is like I'm an introvert by trade. I, I rarely go out. I rarely see friends because I'm all in on my business, and um, nothing fulfills me more than a fighter getting their arm raised on fight night in it's such a high octane, chaotic sport that has no other. You know, it's, it's win or lose. It's it, yeah, it really is. Um, in terms of specifics, you know, I've. I've coached an NFL Super Bowl winner, which I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know many coaches in the UK can say they have. J.J. of the Philadelphia Eagles, they beat Brady's Patriots in 2017, 2018. I've got his signed shirt in the, in the office in there, which is, which is a nice moment. Um, but the likes of Connor Ben's journey is really something that makes me proud because, you know, he's, he's a great human. But also I started working with him when he got put down two times by Cedric Paynow at York Hall. Um, that was in the middle of December and I accepted the role as head of performance and match and boxing in January. So I thought, let me go and see what I'm working with here. And, you know, arguably that fight could have gone either way. So it got a load of buy-in from the get-go because he knew he needed to make changes. But the trajectory and journey that he's had, Charlie, was here and now it's literally vertical. No one expected Conor Ben to be at the level that he's at. Um, but it's because of the traits that we just mentioned as to why he's such a student of the game from not just my high performance setup, but also what Tony Sims puts out there with technical boxing coaching. Those merged together with an athlete who's so um, yeah, so involved and, and just wants any marginal gain is is the winning formula. So that's that I'm proud of, as well as John Ryder, his progress. Um, I've worked with Josh Taylor as uh, the undisputed champion of the world. We flew out to Las Vegas in uh, April of last year. And he beat Jose Ramirez, uh, the undefeated Mexican, uh, to become undisputed, the fourth man in history to do so. And undisputed for the listeners is all of the belts in the division. Literally, it's undisputed. So that was that was probably, you know, that was up there because we made huge improvements that camp. Yeah, of course, sitting on the fence here. I'm not going to reel off every achievement, don't no, worry. Right. But yeah, there, there's a few there. <laughs> so question, how did you, where did you gain your more sports-specific knowledge and how did you transfer from training gen pop to um, professional athletes? Because I imagine there's a lot of like a lot of fitness professionals listen to this podcast. Like they're probably thinking like um, that's something that maybe someone would aspire to do is work with more trained individuals. Would you have any advice for them or maybe talk about your story a little bit, how about how that moved along? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think mine was spanned over 16 and a half years. It's constantly learning, evolving, it's the kind of Japanese, uh, sorry to go philosophical, but it's the case and constant never-ending improvements, you know, you're constantly trying to get better in any way. So whether that be, I've got a load of books around there now, but whether that be purchasing all of the strength conditioning books, whether that be listening to all the podcasts, going to all the seminars, I've travelled the world and immersed myself with practitioners who are where I want to go and where I can learn and who I can learn from. And I've invested in myself to do so. I've obviously been on the, all of the courses and, um, you know, gained the knowledge and qualifications that, that have been required throughout that journey as well. Um, I've done a lot, even online with the Exos, which is, uh, I highly recommend that uh, over in over in America. That's, that, that can be done online as well. Um, but I'd also recommend flying out there because it's in the same facility. So I think, um, yeah, for the, for the listeners, just find coaches and practitioners who are where you want to be 
who you can resonate with, maybe, you know, who work with the athletes if you do want to go down that route that you want to work with and either pay for their time or try and add value to them in some capacity and, you know, go on a journey with them. So I now mentor a load of coaches and to be honest, we've signed, I think we've got 17 signups for this elite six month mentorship and probably eight of them are working boxing strength and conditioning in some capacity. So evidently they, they've taken the, you know, a leaf out of my book, so to speak, and seen, okay, this guy's working with the best of the best and trained all these world champions. I've probably learned a thing or two about that. So I think, yeah, just kind of goes back to growth mindset, Charlie, to be honest, just keep learning, like learn from everyone and it will take time. Um, Mark actually asked me to leave a voice note to one of his mentorship students the other day. And he was like, He's a little bit lost in terms of the transition from general pop, normal people, lose weight, tone up because he wants to work with athletes. His Instagram, you know, he's, he's starting to showcase a little bit more athlete-focused work, but he's, he's a little bit lost because he's, no, he's getting no traction from it. So I left him a, a few voice notes um, and, uh, yeah, the reply was really nice, actually, just to say, look, you know, just uh, don't take all your focus away from your what's got you where you need to go. But, you know, you can still then maybe put some steps in place to work with an avatar that's uh, more aligned to where you'd like to go over time. So um, I think, yeah, it's a process is probably the best answer to that question. It won't happen overnight. You know, you've just got to be, here's that big C word again, just got to be consistent, man. That was exactly what I was about to say. And I think the, one of my favorite things I like to say to people is like, if you want to be successful in anything, it will come down to this one thing is modeling. So find like not swanning around in swim shorts in Dubai, but like, like say for example, you want to be a boxing strength division coach. Then you want to model someone like Dan, for example, like you want to go find someone who's done what you want to do and like pay them for information or pay them to help you or like model that person because they know what you don't know. They've, made the mistakes you're going to make and they can save you a lot of time and heartache by not going through that process. So that's a really, really big thing that I think people really need to take at home. And I actually think, I don't know if you, if you see this, but I see the big difference between um, British society's mindset and American, North American society. And being British, I can say this, that British people are very closed-minded and not willing to invest in themselves. And we're much rather like, I'll work it out myself. It's like, okay, that's cool. You might work it out and it takes five years, but I'll just pay Dan or like pay me to help me build my business or fitness coaching or whatever. And guess what? I'll learn it in six months, four and a half years later, like I'll have had a massive business and be really successful. You'll have just worked out who's going to be a better position. hundred percent. You, you've got to invest and in I wish I'd have done it sooner, but I say that I've been investing my, I've been investing myself my whole career, but in terms of mentors, I only hired my first mentor probably, six years ago and I, I wish I'd have done that sooner but I suppose there's been a huge shift now everyone's a living mentor and coach but um, you know I wish I did do it because it just it speeds up the process exactly like you said there it's interesting because uh, at the Scaling the Systems event Ravi actually said about that he said in America they expect you to sell and like I think it was something like I might it was either between, I think it was in the UK people are six times less likely to purchase on a phone sales call than they are in the US. And it's just like, no, I'd rather just do it myself. You know, I don't want to listen to you type thing. Completely right. He actually said that that was supposedly a stat. So, <laughs> But it's entirely believable. And I see that from the fitness industry as well. Um, hmm. What a question for you. What do you think the your thoughts on like the lack of psych psychological training that maybe like younger athletes were having maybe a few years ago versus now? Because I think like one of the big things we've spoken about a lot already is in terms of psychology and why some people are super successful. Obviously you mentioned Connor Ben. 
Like, do you think that's something that people are now starting to realize, like, this is the big needle mover that needs to be addressed first because the body will only go where the mind takes it? Because I think it's been neglected for a very, very long period of time. Without doubt. Great question. And at Perform365, we have four pillars, Charlie. Training, nutrition, recovery. And our fourth pillar is mindset being the glue that holds the other three together. And I wholeheartedly mean that because the body will only go so far, as you've alluded to, you know, and if the mind's not right, it will only take you to a certain place. If you can really get the mind right, then it will take you to wherever you choose to go. Um, that does come back to the goal setting process, having clarity with your goals and having the right people around you to really steer the ship and punch the coordinates in the sat nav, so to speak, to reach specific outcomes. But yeah, you've just got to, um, well, actually a case in point is, at the moment, I work, I performance manage a number of, of footballers, uh, both in, in the Premier League, Championship, League One, and we do a lot around the psychological aspects of that. Um, a lot of my work is done via Zoom now, and we look at changing the narrative, improving internal dialogue, changing uh, their own perception of their self before externally they can influence the environment about how others perceive them. We've seen some profound changes with that, and I think players are now becoming more aware. I actually spoke to a couple of, well, Premier League players in, in Portugal recently and they've got their own kind of whatever we call them mindset coaches uh, for argument's sake and um, they're very aware now that that's, that's an area that, that needs, to be, uh, needs to be mastered for sure is it where it needs to be probably not but it's certainly something they are more aware of and open to um, because they realise it's, it's an incredibly important part of the performance picture Do you have any books you recommend on mindset? Oh yeah of course blimey I'll, I'll give I'll give two that are probably a sporting one. Relentless and Winning by Tim Grover. <laughs> they're absolutely brilliant. They're two of my recommended reads for sure. Yeah, Relentless Winning. Even the high performance with uh, Jake Jake Humphrey is yeah. the podcast that they've now merged into the book. I um, I'm looking around because actually I I bought that for my athletes for Christmas. I bought every one of my athletes a copy of. It was actually a copy of Winning. I bought them all a copy of Winning. And I then bought them all a copy of the high performance just with a little note um, to say, look, dive into this. Thank you for your work. Looking forward to working with you again uh, next season. So, yeah, winning, relentless, high performance. Um, oh, blimey. This is all I, all I read and listen to. And I, Yeah, they, they'd be the ones up there. And then if you're looking at habits, obviously Atomic Habits by James Clare is, is a very, very good read. Change Maker by John Berardi is another really good one um, that might really help your listeners. Um, yeah, I'll just call. Uh, the slight yeah. edge by Jeff Olson's very good as well. I'd add that's another habits book. Nice. Okay, I haven't actually dived into that one. Um, ah, the mindful athlete. There's one there. So, mindful athlete by George Mumford and Phil Jackson. That's a, that's another really good one. Um, you can go slightly off piece with Way of the Peaceful Warrior. That's that might be <laughs> might work for some, maybe not so much for others. And um, yeah, they they probably be my ones for sure. Here's another recommendation I say to everyone when it comes to books. Like certain books you'll want at certain times in your life and then only be applicable at certain times, depending where your head's at. So like like before I moved to Dubai, I had an amazing book collection that crushed my soul having to get rid of because I couldn't take them all. But like people would recommend books, I would just buy everything because I know at some point that book will probably be relevant to me if it's good. It might not be relevant now, but at some point it probably will be depending on where I'm at my head, health and career or whatever. So that would be something I'd say. I think that's a really valid point. I got, I think from your recommendation, Alex Hormozzi, 100 million offers. Yeah. And uh, I, at first, was a bit like, oh, I'm not really resonating with this guy. Now, yeah. because I'm launching a new business in January, I can't get enough of him. I literally listen to him every day. I think he's absolutely brilliant. 
Um, so, so yeah, timing is everything. I've got a couple more for the listeners now, actually. This is a really good one, which likely they won't be aware of. Is Raise Your Game by Alan Stein Jr. Self-narrated. He's worked with, loosely worked with people like uh, Kobe Bryant, Steph Curry. Um, but that's a really inspiring listen from a, from a mindset point of view, for sure. Um, so highly recommend that one. Um, yeah, I think they'd, yeah, there's enough there for the listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> Here's a question for you, Dan. I'm going to the Maldives for four, four days next week, first world problems, to try and switch off. I'm not taking my phone. What, the, what, the, what book should I take with me that I have to hammer through? I've read Relentless and Winning and listened to the audiobooks. I'm tempted to buy them and listen to again. Or would you mm. listen to Raise Your Game again? I haven't, I haven't read that. Raise Your Game's good. Raise Your Game's good. Uh, maybe get the... That's one of those you get the highlighter pen out and, uh, yeah. and actually read. I think that you know, there's a negative drawback to Audible. There's positive and negative, I suppose. The negative, especially if you go to the Maldives for four days to completely disconnect, is that you're going to still have your phone there and you're not going to disconnect. Whereas if you're there with a book, you could be fully immersed in the book and not really think about anything else. So I'd recommend the book, though some Audibles are very well self-narrated by people like Green Lights with Matthew McConaughey, self-narrated by the man himself is like just mind-blowing. I think it's absolutely brilliant. I've listened to that three times. Um, another one, actually, another one, Relentless. I don't know if you like Eddie Hearn, but Eddie Hearn's, you know, quite an inspiring individual. He's taken Matchroom uh, to, to oh, unprecedented new heights from his father's business. So that's, that's another good one. He's self-narrated. It cool? It's called Relentless. Uh, Relentless okay. 12 Rounds to Success. So that's, that's pretty decent. Um, there's other other ones I recommend, like Never Spit the Difference by Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator. I think that's really cool. Um, so, yeah, I took a lot away from that. Funny enough, I actually used some of the tactics employed in that to purchase the property that I'm in now, which is, uh, yeah, you'll have to listen to it to see why. But, uh, but it, yeah, that's a really interesting listen as well. All right, I'm going to go on Amazon and buy those for my trip next week. So I appreciate that. So that's some, <laughs> some value. Um, my last question before we get into my specific question with regards to sports, which everyone can listen into. Uh, thoughts on deep tissue and recovery work. Do you think there's a lot of benefit from that? Obviously, I know we've both got a mutual friend, James Davis in the UK, who's awesome. Uh, so you've treated me for a long time. It made a big, big difference. Um, opinion on that? Yeah, without doubt. It's a huge part of the performance picture. I've actually got a business with James called G1% Human Performance Optimization. He's our head of medical, works with a number of the Premier League players that I work with. He's got, as you well know, magic hands. He's absolutely brilliant. He's actually he's actually just got a book coming out uh, I can't recall the name of it. God, I'm going to kick myself. But he's got a book literally just come out now. So um, that's all around you know, performance, health, and becoming a you know a fitter individual and live a better life. But um, yeah, it's a huge part of the picture for sure. Especially like let's again keep it on trend with boxing. Is if these guys are super beat up, they they might be really you know overloaded through let's just say pet minor which is an internal rotator of the shoulder we know we've spoken about the shoulder issues with boxers uh, that then influences the scapular positioning in terms of you know the forward tilt so yeah getting some soft tissue work in through there getting some work through the lats is going to be really really important just to allow them to access a little bit more range of motion so yeah we have that's part of their their weekly rituals that they have to get some soft tissue work a minimum of once a week i actually asked them to get it twice um obviously there's a cost implication to that as well but um yeah, that's a huge part of the performance picture for sure. 100%. Now to go into my own selfish questions, I'm going to begin now. So if you're taking someone who's, like say I'm basically 90, 96, 97 kilos, gone from a lot of conventional weight training, generally pretty good shape. I'm running into a few issues when it comes to boxing in terms of I get, I get gassed up about 30 seconds because for probably like the last 10, 15 years, whenever I've done like hit cardio, I've been used to doing rounds of 30 seconds. 
that is, I think, is why I'm getting bottlenecks alongside struggling to breathe. And also my feet are a lot better, but it was a bit like my feet were in stone, whereas I used to be quite quick when I was younger. What would you do with AKA me or an athlete in that individual when you're trying to focus on those two points? Is the goal to fight? Are we looking at Potentially in six to 12 months. Okay. So firstly, getting the weight down. If you were fighting, let's say fighting at say 90 kilos, would be probably optimal for you if you're currently around 96, 97, just, you know, lose, you know, all your tissue. Um, but that will may, therefore mean you, you obviously carry less weight to move around the ring. So there's going to be less of a cost from an energy system point of view. Obviously, the bioenergetics, you know, the heavier you are, the more taxing that is on the cardiorespiratory system. So getting the weight down a little bit, that would be beneficial in that regard. So you don't gas out after 30 seconds. But the 30 seconds that you're uh, gassing out on and were doing previously, again, it goes back to my other point of specific adaptations for imposed demands. If all you've ever done is high intensity work for 30 seconds in duration, then that might not be the best thing to prepare you for, you know, three minutes where you're throwing a high frequency and volume of shots. Um, We'll talk about that more specifically in a second, but managing your punch volume as well is important. I think when it's a new sport, it's like, you just want to go in, let all your hands go right away and then you just fall off a cliff. So knowing that you gas out after 30 seconds, and let's say it is a three-minute round or a two-minute round, whatever you're doing, it's like, okay, now I'm just going to measure it. I'm going to use my feet a little bit more. I'm going to conserve my energy at certain points. And when I see an opening, you know, I'm going to maybe use my jab just to use that as a range finder. And I'm going to throw less of my power punches, uppercuts, hooks, et cetera, backhands, uh, because I know that there's, there's a cost implication to when I throw those shots. Um, I think the feet being in stone goes back to the, the weight as well. You know, maybe being lighter would definitely help with that. I think um, with your training as well, looking at more things like more reactive plyometric work, you know, some extensive plyometrics like pogos where you get springy and reactive on the ground, that can help um, improve the, you know, the stiffness of the, the muscle tendon unit. Maybe doing some direct calf work like some soleus and gastroc work uh, would, you know, make that lower limb more compliant. It will help with the stiffness as well. Um, then looking at more joint angle specificity, Charlie. So things like split squats and, maybe some isometrics where you're in that almost like 90-90 positions, like yeah. for the listeners, like bottom position of a split squat or lunge. Um, because that's that's where you're probably going to feel most most tired is when you start bending your legs and start trying to get under some shots and you just literally can't move. So again, it goes back to the said principle. If we can incorporate some of those movements where, you know, you're not just working through a very short range of motion, you're actually getting through slightly deeper range of motion initially, um, that could be advantageous to build some tissue tolerance uh, in those positions. What would be the quickest way to build up specific aerobic conditioning? Would you look at doing, trying to build up, say, for focused, like take, say, if you, say for example, at the moment, I mute my condition to do, say, 30 seconds and I start to drop off a cliff after that point. Would you then just maybe literally outside of boxing and weight training, add in additional hit training that maybe start to work at 45 seconds and then maybe after two weeks scale it to 60 and then just start to like, build up in that fashion, if that makes sense? Yeah, there's, and I wasn't alluding to earlier when you said you only did 30 seconds that you should now do all of the conditioning for three minutes. So just for the listeners to give them some context behind that, I'm not saying it has to be that because we're trying to drive the physiology. We're not just trying to work the duration. Um, so when we talk about hit training, I think let's go specific now. So there's a study, a paper in 2007 by Helgren, the Swedish researcher on hit. Okay. And HIT is high intensity interval training for your listeners. And I think it gets misconstrued, you know, about what HIT is in the fitness uh, world these days. So true HIT, and this, this targets that, it raises, it increases VO2 max, the size of the engine. 
is four minutes on. This is a protocol we use with our elite athletes. Four minutes on. So it's four times four. Four minutes on um, and you do four intervals at 90 plus percent of max heart rate. So you'd have to wear a heart rate monitor. It's red zone domination because what do we know when we strap you up with a heart rate monitor when you're boxing? It's predominantly red, red zone. You know, it's like 70, 80% anaerobic. Yes, you've got to have an aerobic base. We understand that. But there ha- you have to operate at high intensities because it's a, a sport which has repeated intermittent bouts of high intensity exercise. So, yeah, four minutes on, uh, four intervals at 90 plus percent max heart rate. The recovery is three minutes after each interval at 70% max heart rate. And yeah, being honest, Charlie, it's bloody hard. You know, it is. Yeah, it's just going to be fucking awful. Yeah, we use a treadmill for this. Um, and look, I mean, I'm not saying you by any stretch, but look, people would need to, don't just think, oh, I've booked a white collar fight in 12 weeks' time. I've been sitting on, with my feet up and haven't trained for two years. Our Dan said, because he works with X and Y, that I've got to do high intensity. Do not do that. You've got to earn the right to do this. This is, again, going back, this is like the summit of the mountain. You've got to climb it first. So I'd be looking at building the base even with like a cardiac output method. So using more of an aerobic focus now, Joel Jameson popularized this. The cardiac output method is 40 to 50 or 45 to 60 minutes, I should say. Um, heart rate zones 120 to 150 BPM. So it's green zone, lower end stuff. You could use a bike, you could use a treadmill, you could use an incline walk. But again, I can't give specifics on speed because the heart rate is what we're looking to achieve. And that's going to improve stroke volume and improve the size of the engine so that when you then go through the gears, you, ha- you can recover quicker. What would you recommend in terms of, with your athletes, what they do in terms of, say for the four minutes of four intervals and 90% max heart rate, what would you have them do for that exercise? Would you be getting them doing circuits of like different exercises, sprinting on treadmill, spin bikes, rowing machines, or a combination treadmill. of all horrible things, treadmill? Yeah, treadmill. We, we use a treadmill for that. Um, we find it just works. Yeah, it works best. So yeah, treadmill would definitely be the best. And we wouldn't use like a curved treadmill for that. We do something else called sprint interval training, which is 30 seconds on, three minutes off, and it's max effort. And you just got to hold for the total duration. We'd use like an assault bike or woodway curve for that. But this one, the high intensity interval training, we'd definitely use a, a treadmill, a standardized motor, motorized treadmill. What was that you said on the last one? It's 30 seconds on, three minutes off? Yeah. So sprint interval training, yeah, is um, 30 seconds on, three minutes off, assault bike or curved treadmill. Yeah. Doesn't sound like much. But no, it's going to be awful. It's going to be yeah, awful. Brutal. brutal. And that would be when you start that, and you'll be fine doing that now, actually. In fact, I'd say start with that, Charlie. You do four intervals. So if you work, do the maths on that. It's only two minutes of actual work time. But you could do that. You can see some change. I think the research says if you do that consistently for, I think it's two to three sessions a week, it might be the latter, three sessions a week. For three weeks, you can see considerable changes. I'll dig out the research paper if you want to share it in the notes. But yeah, that, that's a good one to start with, for sure. All right, last one before we finish this masterpiece of getting me in fitness shape. What, um, what heart rate monitor do you recommend? Because people are probably listening to this thing, I want to do this. What heart rate monitor do I buy? Yeah, I've got, I use a Garmin at the moment. Um, my guys, yeah, my guys actually using Garmin at the moment, but Garmin, Polar, they tend to be good ones. Even like some of my coaching team have MyZone because it syncs up and they can access that data if you've got a coach. Um, but yeah, I use personally Garmin, but anything that's going to be relatively accurate, but Garmin and Polar for me are, are certainly up there. And for anyone else listening who's in the same situation, wants to do this and currently weight trains a lot, would you look to try and reduce maybe the training volume you're doing in terms of 
weight training a little bit if you start to hit a wall in terms of recovery or would you just slowly start to layer this in a little bit it's almost like what i've done with boxing is starting two sessions a week on the days where i'm not lifting weights and then i'm scaling it to three like in addition to my weight training so i have one day where i train boxing and weight training so my plan is to start adding one or two um hit sessions a week like you basically described which is probably going to take me up to like four or five days a week where I'm doing double sessions. Do you think that's too much for most people? For most people, again, it goes back to it depends. It depends on where you're currently at, training age, chronological age, uh, exposure to, to training and, you know, what you can tolerate because fundamentally you're only as good as what you can recover from. So if you can't recover and you'll know that very quickly, then you're evidently doing too much. I think the great thing about the sprint interval sessions that I just said there, the 30 seconds on, and th- sorry, th- yeah, 30 seconds on, three minutes off, four rounds, is the total volume and duration of the session is very, very low, though the intensity is very, very high. So if you are doing double sessions, it's not going to be, yes, brutal at the time, but it's not going to be too demanding from a stressor and recovery point of view. It's not like you're, you know, you're going out and doing 12 rounds sparring five days a week. That, well, that's going to be a real issue or you're doing heavy max effort work in the gym five days a week. Obviously, you're not going to recover from that. So I think firstly, identify where you're at. Don't just go in and do add like four or five different things. You've got to layer it, see how you respond, see how you deal with it. And then you can kind of build things up from there. But something we look at as well from a dose response point of view, Charlie, is like high and low days with our elite athletes. Not every day could be a high day. So to give the listeners some context, like a high day might be strength conditioning. Uh, so it might be 12 rounds sparring in the morning, let's say on a Monday. And in the evening, they got their strength conditioning. Well, we know the expenditure is very, very high, especially with the sparring. And we also know, because we're trying to drive neuromuscular-based adaptations with the strength and power, that that's going to be pretty demanding as well on the CNS. So fueling needs to be merged hand in glove with training expenditure and outputs on that Monday. But then Tuesday might be, let's say, a cardiac output run, very low-intensity green zone run. And it might be some technical boxing work. Well, we know then that that's a lower day, so it allows them to recover more. And it might be that that could also be a day that taps into the weight-making strategy because they're not going to need to replace muscle glycogen stores as much as possible with the carbohydrates because they, you know, they're, they're not doing their sparring. So I think, yeah, it has to be a go back to like a macro-level approach in terms of looking at every moving part from a nutrition, a training, a recovery point of view. And what you'd also say then, you asked a great question there about Am I an advocate for soft tissue work? Yes, that's a huge recovery modality that we utilize. But of course, if your training frequency and volumes and intensities have increased, you're going to need to prioritize recovery more because, you know, if you're not getting the soft tissue work and also if you're not getting sleep, that's another one. You know, imagine that you increase training frequency, volume and intensities, and then your sleep is only four or five hours a night. Well, that's yeah, going to be a downward spiral. So just got to get a look at every moving part. Do you have a, this last question, this is random in case of my head, do you have an optimal body fat you look for your fighters to be at? Because obviously there's a big sliding scale in terms of people like Tyson Fury, he's obviously got quite a high body fat percentage, but is obviously very good at what he does. Um, mm. Do you have, is that something you look at or not really? We, well, I've just booked a Dexter scan for Connor Ben on Harley Street uh, for Friday of this week, so we can look at bone mineral density, lean tissue, et cetera, and then, you know, RMR, so it can inform our nutrition strategy. So yeah, we do absolutely look at it. Do we have a specific number that I'd like them to be? No, we're looking at so many metrics and making weight is, is you know, the, the main thing we're looking at. And that starts not just on fight week, that starts, you know, 12 weeks prior, we set that and then we reverse engineer the process, put steps in place of where we'd like them to be, 
you know, every Monday with their fasted check weight just to make sure we're not too far away from the framework. But um, in terms of specifics of body fat, no, we manipulate a number of variables on fight week around gut content elimination, fiber, sodium, water, um, obviously carbohydrates and water interlinked. But um, so I, I don't really care what their body fat is. You know, it's like Tyson's an outlier. He's, you know, supreme talented athlete and heavyweights that aren't governed by making weight so what he does in terms of how he looks aesthetically is kind of down to him but um you know i'd much prefer but yeah my athletes to look like athletes for sure good good answer uh thank you dan because this has been an absolute fucking blast and we need to have you back again i think after this so where can people uh find out more about you check out some more what you do yeah, firstly, look, thanks for having me, Charlie. Great line of questions. Always good to chat. And uh, I'm on Instagram at Perform365, uh, LinkedIn, Dan Lawrence. And uh, yeah, shoot me a message if you have any questions, guys. Awesome. So I'm sure everyone will absolutely love this. Make sure you please leave us a five-star review. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, drop any comments below. And we will see you in the next episode of The Shred Show.